Well, we've been going through the Psalms. This morning we come to a nice, round, even one. Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is uh, pretty simple, really. We said that the Psalms come in many sizes, shapes, and forms. Some are very short. Some are very long. The shortest chapter in the Bible is a psalm of two or three lines. And the longest chapter in the Bible is a psalm. They're, they're long and short. They're complicated and they're simple. They're repetitive and they're sometimes deep. And I would say sometimes they're, they're simple and deep. I look at Psalm 100 and I was reading it this week and I, uh, again, in finding it to be a very simple psalm. There aren't complicated ideas in here. There, there is not uh, profound language and sometimes we use language as we have to profound. And we said last week, sometimes we have impressive music to to teach us things and impress things on our souls. And through our singing, we learn and grow. At other times, our worship is expressive. It's not so much there to teach us something as to express that which is there. And sometimes that is simpler and more spontaneous and just as powerful. And in Psalm 100, it's one of those that I think is both simple and yet rich and powerful. It's not complicated, and yet it is full of rich and deep ideas because, because of who God is and because of our worship. So let's, let's read it and, and wade into what, uh, what God is saying here, into what as I see as I read it is the simple heart of worship. And yet we know the heart of worship, though it may be simple, is still rich and deep. Pray with me. Or read with me, rather. Sorry, getting ahead of myself. Psalm 100, hear then the Word of God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that Yahweh is God. It is He who has made us. And we're His. We are His people. We are the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Into His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His holy name. For He is good. The Lord is good. And His steadfast love endures forever in His faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we come to Your Word this morning. We enter into Your courts with praise. We enter into Your presence with singing. Father, even as we come to You and into Your presence, we long for You to speak to us through the rich simplicity of Your Word. That it would shape our hearts and our minds. That it would shape our worship and our attitudes. That it would bring forth from us that joyful noise that is the overflow of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, the Bible reveals a God who is awesome. You cannot read from Genesis to Revelation and not come away with a profound sense of the awesomeness of the God who is. The God who has created all things. A God who is so holy that sinful people cannot look on Him and live without a mediator, without a Savior. And it also reveals though that this awesome and glorious 
God who is high and lifted up is also our Savior. And that He condescends that He not only lives in a high and holy place, but also with Him who is contrite and of a broken heart. That He also is a Savior who comes near. A shepherd. We are His sheep of His pasture. A shepherd who walks with us, is near to us. It reveals to us a God who has said, I will be a father to you. And you will be like sons and daughters. You can call me Abba. Right? We have a God who reveals Himself. It's Isaiah, I think, let's say the verse wrong, I think 55, 17, but it's there in the latter part of, of, of Isaiah where He says, I am a God who lives in a high and holy place, but also with Him who is contrite to restore us to life and to health. This God who is the almighty, uncreated Creator who also is our God and Father in Jesus. And who when we pray, we say, Abba. These realities combine. This God who reveals Himself to us combine to create as we come to worship what I would say is just a complex set of emotions. And we are, we are made for complexity. There's, there's room for complexity. Sometimes when we have these discussions about worship and other things, it almost seems like it's either this or it's this. And the Bible clearly reveals not a God who is this or this, or, or things that are just very simple and can be said in a word or two, and that's the end of the discussion. There is this complexity, this richness of emotion, this breadth. Almost every encounter with a holy deity results in the Bible in prostration and awful fear. Awful in the original sense of the word. Awe-filled fear. When Peter figures out a little bit of who Jesus is, even in his first encounter, says, depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. He drops to his knees. But almost, almost every encounter that, that begins with that kind of fear ends with called to not be afraid and to get up. To rise in the presence of the One whom you have fallen. To rise in His presence. To engage with this One. To not be afraid. And so the encounter has these two parts. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. This probably the most graphic picture or demonstration or uh, story that we have of an encounter with the picture of God in His, in His glory. Right? It says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. You know, His glory is filling the temple. The place is shaking and filled. Right? You have this picture of God in all of His glory. And then, Isaiah is undone. That is always where it starts. When we find out who God is and we encounter Him. But that's never where it ends. It never leaves you groveling on the ground before His glory. He says, do not be afraid and get up. Know me and love me and worship me and walk with me. And He says to Isaiah, see, this coal from the altar has taken away your sin. It has changed this situation. You are undone by your sin, but My grace has changed that situation. Rise. Serve Me without fear. The removal of fear by the gift of His grace, such mercy, would cause anyone to sing. 
And we see it as you read the Psalms. I say we get Psalms of all kinds, and some of them hit those notes of the encounter, and they're, and they're, they're more somber, they're more reverent in that sense, but many of them, at least a third of them, have Psalm 100 written all over it, that sense of joy, the removal of fear. Psalm 211. We preached, we looked at this psalm back at the beginning, but it says this that we are to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. Now, just think about those two words together. It's almost, you know, hard to put together in one phrase to rejoice with trembling. Right? When you are full of joy, when you are. I, I mean, usually we think of it as bursting with joy, right? Something happens, you win the lottery, something good happens. You know, just think of it like you're, you're bouncing, you know, rejoice, be full of joy. And there is this, this thing that is hard. I'm not saying that, I guess what I'm saying is joy is compatible with this trembling. Right? There are, in other words, we have, we have complex emotions. Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians 6.10 as he's talking about their, their experience in being ministers of the Gospel and, and of this service before the Lord. And he says this, we're sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Paul, how do you do that? Right? In one sense, you're sorrowful, prostrate, undone by your sin or, or, or undone by, by other circumstances. He says, yet we're always rejoicing. We come to this psalm that just rings with exuberance in worship. It's noisy, right? Again, how many times does it say, make a joyful noise? And it literally means a noise. There's melody and tune in there. There's singing in there. They all have their own words. And this is a word for a loud shout. It's, it's, it's for a, a noise of a, of a loud something. It's the breaking forth. We come to a song that is a psalm again that is noisy and exuberant and joyful and full of praise, and full of worship. There's nothing quiet and somber here. All is joy. Enter His presence, He says, with joyful noise, and singing, and thankfulness. We're responding not only to who God is in His awesome glory. We do that. And if we neglect that, we have missed the heart of worship. Uh, but we are also responding to who God is and His mercy and His grace. Who He is to us in Christ. All that He has done for us. All that we have in Him. All this freedom that He has given us. Freedom from our fear. God loves, the Bible says, Jesus says, only in outside of the Gospels in the New Testament, I think, and, and Revelation, the only thing that Jesus is quoted as saying is, God loves a cheerful giver. And I know that the context of that statement is around the giving of our finances, our worldly goods. And God loves, in other words, He doesn't like grudging, fearful, reluctant givers. Just like He speaks to the leaders of the church and He says He wants us to be willing and not under compulsion. He loves willing, cheerful Giving, and He loves it in our service as elders and deacons and officers. He loves it in our giving, whether it's financial. But I would argue that there is a principle there that is just outright, that whatever God wants from us, He wants that way. That there is no service that He would desire from us that wouldn't be cheerfully given. That He's happy for it to be grudgingly, painfully drawn out of us. God loves a cheerful giver. And I believe that that works in worship. That worship is to be full of the joy of the Lord that is our strength 
and is the joy of our salvation that is spoken of again and again. Oh, my friends, there's a time, and don't get me wrong, there is a time for kneeling. I find myself on my knees at times. There is, there is a time for silence. I find myself without words at times. There is a time for all when we are struck at different times by who God is, when we sing, uh, as we did just now, that last song, and we sing it together about this God who is on His throne. There's an awe that comes over, but there's a time for all things. There's a time apparently in our worship for great, exuberant, expressive joy. We're to serve the Lord with gladness. Right, he says, as he says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth and serve the Lord with gladness. Now, when he says serve the Lord here, it's interesting, doesn't it, that it comes in the middle of this make a joyful noise to the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. So the first sentence is clearly about worship, and I would say corporate worship, and so is the third one, and this middle one about serving the Lord, I would, I would suggest is also about worship. You ever wonder why we call when it says we are going to have on Sunday morning at 10.45 at HPC, we have a worship service. Why do we call it a service? What is a service? If you give your service to your country, we think a lot about on a weekend like this as we celebrate our freedom. You give your service. You give, we think of service as something different, but this is a worship service. And that the reason is because in the, the Hebrew, in the word here that's translated to serve the Lord, is not your, your, it's the same word that's used elsewhere very often as serve. There's two of them that are used in the context of worship all the time. This word here, which is abad, not that that means anything to you, it's used as a synonym for worship. It's used in the worship context. It's, it's used in the context of what the priests do in the temple they, don't, they serve there, but their service there isn't just like a generic service, sweeping the floors and whatever. It is, it is all of the forms of worship that they're engaged in that involve the candelabra and candles and the lavers and the cleansing and the sacrifices and the showbread and all of this and all that they do in there. It's not, it's not just like this is service and this is worship. It's all they, their service in the temple. It's all worship. And what we do, and what we are called to as His people, in the same way, we are a kingdom of priests. And that, that what we bring and what we do, there's no breakdown between those two. Like there's worship and then there's serving Him. We, we, our worship is the first service, the first act of a soul in response to a God who is as glorious as He is and as gracious as He's been to us. We serve Him and not idols. And the first way we serve Him is to worship Him and not idols. And everything we do in that sense is a, is a service. Which is why I would say God loves a cheerful giver as we give all these things to us. But this is what we, I guess what I'm getting to, what we are made for. It is how we serve the Lord is, is part of it is what we're doing here this morning. Look at Isaiah 43.21. God says this, The people whom I formed for Myself called them out of the world, made covenant with them, saved them in Christ, made them my own, poured out my Spirit on them, put them in relationship with myself. I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters. And he creates this, this people I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. Right? It is who we are. 
We are made for it. We are created and recreated in Christ for it. First Peter, Peter in the New Testament reiterates it when he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Again, four Old Testament names, titles for Israel. In other words, he is lavishing on his New Testament church an identity, a historical transcending identity with the continuation of His people through all of the ages. And Peter says, you don't, you're not pulled out of thin air. You are in continuation. And He gives us this identity, the same identity of His, other, his people through the ages. His chosen raised, a royal priesthood, the holy nation. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. I think this is why Hebrews says we are not to neglect the gathering together of ourselves. Most of us are familiar with that verse. It's that that we should not, he says, neglect the gathering together. Why? Because here, together, we have been called to worship. You know, you ever wonder why we... You know, we do a call to worship. We, we believe, and it's part of our liturgy, and it starts at the front. There are reasons why we pray a prayer of confession and a reason why we have a call to worship. Because we have, as His people, for the millennia that we have existed, He has called us out for this reason. It is our service. The first act of your service. And in fact, I would argue at some level, that the other acts of service we might say we do unto the Lord, if it neglects this one, becomes hollow. And vice versa. Which I'm going to say elsewise. That this service here of worship that you give to the Lord, too, becomes empty if the rest of our lives are disconnected from it. Our biblical service and worship should be seamless with the rest of our lives. Right? Why? Well, because who you are ought to be seamless with the rest of your life. That who you are this morning shouldn't be somebody different than you were Friday night. Or Tuesday morning at work. Or anywhere else. Like who you are as you stand and sing the songs we sang with the voice of the congregation, worshiping this one and responding to Him. Who you are now should be nothing more in this moment than an expression and an extension of who you are on Tuesday morning and Friday night and Saturday as you spend your time. In other words, our outward worship, our corporate worship, or our personal private worship is the expression of hearts that ought to be what they are all the time. They, can't, they don't change. The Bible speaks very much about the double-minded or the double-hearted, the, of the single heart that belongs to Him. Sunday morning in corporate worship where we've not neglected, but we, we service, come to us, worship service, and then the rest of our lives that flow from and to this moment. And I would say this worship here is only acceptable. As you were just singing and saying all those things, and you were saying, and whether it was coming really from your heart, like you sang with your mind, you're thinking about what you're singing, and you mean it from your heart, that this is the worship. I lift up my, you're lifting your heart and your mind, and you're truly worshiping Him. Whatever you were doing just now as we sang must flow from a life of inward truth. 
that what was there, if it was true in this moment, must be true the rest of the week, and the rest of the days, and the rest of the moments. It comes from a heart that is consistent, that has inward truth, that is without guile. A life of holiness and righteousness and justice. See, Israel sustained the danger, and we learn from our history, and the Bible says everything that is written here is for our learning and education and growth, that we would be shaped and formed from these things. And what we see in the life of Israel is that they sustained their outer forms of worship while losing the heart. They, they continued to offer sacrifices and to have great pomp and circumstance. And they had very impressive worship. Very impressive things that went on in the temple. It was very lofty and people sat back and you could be awed by all the intensity of it. But at some point, God became very disenchanted with the whole thing. Even though the forms of worship were things that He initiated. Things that He asked of them and told them how to do it. Isaiah 29.13, as Israel is coming under judgment and coming to the end of their existence in, in, in the Old Testament, as the, they are taken into captivity, Isaiah says this, this people draw near to Me with their mouth. And they honor Me with their lips when they sing when they do this stuff in temple, when they offer the sacrament, they say all the right things. They sing all the right words. These people honor me outwardly while their hearts are far from me. Paul quotes this in the New Testament. It comes forward as a warning to us to be careful that the heart and the lips match who you are. Like Jesus, humble and gentle of heart, knowing God, loving God, walking with God, worshiping God, honoring God, is who you are always. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you look at there, Paul says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, by all that He has done for us in Christ. If it means anything to you, my brothers, my friends, present your bodies. When he says present your bodies, I want you to hear there, present your whole life. Let me just ask you this right now. How much of your life do you live without your body? Apart from your body. You spend a lot of time in outer body living, outer body experiences, right? So when he says offer your bodies, he is saying your whole life. All of who you are, everything you do, and your body contains your mind and your soul. And it's, so it's everything inside, everything outside, right? That's what he's saying. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Again, not just on a Sunday morning, but who you are, you belong to him. Holy and acceptable God, it's what? Your spiritual worship. Some translation actually translated, this is your spiritual service. Why? Because the word here means both. It's not your run-of-the-mill word for serving. It is a word for serving though, but it always connected to divine service. We, we tra often translate the word as ministry. That you do ministry. You do work. It's a kind of work. It's a kind of serving, but it's, a, it's serving God. It's a ministry. And that's where the difference comes in. And so this is your spiritual service. Is this 
whole person. And then he get, and it makes it clear this isn't Sunday morning. Not being conformed to the world, but transformed. Transformed people. People like Christ. Offering ourselves in corporate worship is a seamless extension of our daily conformity to the God we worship. Do you hear that? Right? Our corporate offering of ourselves. And, I, and if you're not doing that in your worship, I would encourage you starting today that this is what you come here to do. Is to offer yourselves, just like presenting your bodies, offering your whole self to Him. This is your spiritual worship. So that when you go away from here, you go away afresh. Not belonging to yourself, but being bought with a price. You go away afresh, having consecrated yourself to be the man or the woman that God has created you to be. That you go away afresh, committed to living that life that He has designed for us to live. And so as we give ourselves in worship, we are changed. And this is part of where that transforming of heart and mind take place. Part of it is here. We come away refreshed, full of His Spirit, full of a desire to live for Him. Luke 1, when he is explaining what it is that Jesus was here to do, he says that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, from the hands of fear, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness, not on Sunday mornings for an hour, but all of our days. And so He says to come, make a joyful noise, serve the Lord with gladness, and to come into His presence with singing. Let me hit two things there. I'm going to belabor this a little bit, and then I'm going to move quick. But to come into His presence, and I want you to, again, think as you come here this morning, another reason why I think He says, don't forsake the gathering together of yourselves. And because we, we have this corporate thing we do as a people of God, we do this service of worship, that we come here in obedience. We have been called to worship, and we come and give our service of worship. And we come in this corporate setting to enter into His presence in a way that I do believe is often different. And this gets funny and I understand and we have these, you know, that the, the, the Lord is always with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. There is a sense in which God is truly omnipresent, that He's everywhere. We're never, we can't flee from Him. If we tried, He will hunt you down. If He's after you and and. At the same time, there is a uniqueness, I think at times, to the way He manifests His presence to us corporately. And Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in My name, there I am. What does He mean? I'm not with you when you're alone? My friends, you may you know, no, none of us hear that. That is just contradicts everything else He says. It turns out we'll be with you always. Right? He's not saying that, but He says when two or three are gathered, there is a uniqueness of the way that He, I think in the way that He presents Himself to us, hears and responds to us. There is a uniqueness in gathered corporate worship from His people from the oldest of days. In the Old Testament, it was the assembly of Israel. In the New Testament, the word church literally means, translated from the Greek and from the Hebrew predecessor, both words mean gathered, assembly, together. That's what it means. The church of Christ is a gathered people. 
We come in where are we gathered to? We are gathered to His presence. You are called to come into His presence with singing. And so we come. And we don't take worship lightly according to the Scripture. Now let me say this as we move into come into His presence with singing. The singing here for me is, is really clear. It is repeated over and over again that we're to use our voice in unique and musical ways. Right? Because singing is different. If I started singing to you, you start hearing it different. Like, what is he doing? Like, singing is different. We sing to our children. We sing in the car. We sing to the radio. It feels different. We don't use it in normal. It's expressive. And he says that the human voice as an instrument is the only, I would say, immediately and directly created instrument that God made is your voice. Whether it's very good or very bad, mine is down toward if you had a scale, you know, I'm over here, I'm not, I'm not at the, you know, doesn't matter, God made it. It is an instrument that He says clearly over and over and over again, sing. The voice of the congregation together, uniting voices, there's something unique. When we just sang that last song, tell me my friends. Where do you find it? You can listen to it on the radio, I suppose. You can sit in your, in your quiet. And kind of, there is nothing like the voices of God's people united in praise to the point, and I don't get in back into the history lessons and that. There have been periods throughout. I, I have some sympathy with the Church of Christ. They don't use instruments at all because they believe congregational singing. They have some strong ties. I think it was uh, early in the Reformed tradition, in our tradition, they actually sang a cappella because they felt like instruments... And the, and the beauty and the sound of the instruments could actually detract from worship because we'd be more attracted to the instruments and the music than we would to what was going on in our own hearts and in the united voice of God's people. And there was a time in, in the Reformed history that was a, a resistance to using instruments because the voice is primary. And I believe of all the arguments that you could make, in the because I would say this, the Bible says very little about instruments. Right? The Old Testament says a little. You have to go to the Psalms and places where it describes Israel's worship and instruments are used. And it tells us to use them. Play the lyre. Play the harp. Play the trumpet. And the voice of poetic command. Make some noise in your worship. But that's all it says. You get to the New Testament, it says almost nothing. And we first have to say, none of the instruments we use in worship did they use in the Bible. And none of the Bible that they used in the Bible do we use in any regular sense in our worship. So there's this disconnection, and I would say in there there's a lot of freedom. All that the Bible says is grab your instruments. And in those days they were pretty rustic, so to speak. You know what I mean? They're, they weren't they weren't refined, and they used them for thousands of years in the worship of the church. And so it doesn't say much. I think the Bible gives us great freedom in that respect. The New Testament says nothing. There are two instruments mentioned in the New Testament as far as I can tell, uh, the trumpet, which is never in the context of worship, always in the context of announcement. He will descend with a shout and the trumpet. You know, or the seven trumpets, or on and on. The trumpets are used for proclamation. Once the harp is mentioned, somewhere deep in Revelation, where the 24 elders gathered around the throne are playing a harp. And when you hear a harp, you need to hear ancient 2,000 years ago harp. You know, not what you're used to. 
That's the only place in the New Testament it's mentioned. So there's some sympathy there. At the very least, I would have to say there's so much freedom in the kind of instrumentation that we use in terms of being biblical. Uh, But when it comes to singing, I believe the case is closed. And when it comes to the voice of the congregation, I think it is clear as day. And what I want to leave you with in that regard is simply this. I, I have a lot of sympathy with contemporary changes in worship. I am not like the far end and I'm not, I'm somewhere in the middle, but one of the biggest critiques I have of contemporary worship is when it drowns out the voice of the congregation. And I've been in a number of churches over the recent years joining them for worship where I can't hear my wife standing next to me singing. And all I can hear is me and that's not great. I sound better when I sing with you. That's all I know. I can hardly hear myself and I hear the great, I hear the congregation. I sound better. We sound great. We sound awesome. I am lifted up when we are singing together and I hear your voice. And I believe whatever happens up here in instrumentation, it never should overwhelm the voice of God's people. It was always grab it and, and use it. You know, here and there it says grab an instrument, but it's always saying singing, sing, sing, lift your voice. Whatever we do with instruments, it should not, should not overwhelm the voice of God's people. This is my conviction. I believe I have the strongest biblical argument for that than in any other thing that we argue about concerning music and worship. When we can't hear you, we've missed the most obvious thing about biblical worship. Even the New Testament, where it doesn't mention instruments, it says sing. Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, more than once. Sing. Let me run through then a few quick applications of the way our worship should be. And so that gives you some sense of why our worship is shaped the way that it is. I believe that it's very biblical. In, in, in combining both reverence and exuberance, impressive music with expressive music, with, uh, with all this complex of emotions, with the voice of the congregation always being at the top, so that whatever we do accompanies you and hopefully helps and brings forth and, and, and empowers the worship of God's people. But let me give you three more quick ones. I know you saw seven points. I think it was the 4th of July weekend. We ought to celebrate by going about 12.30, like an hour and a No. let me just run through them. A few more things that our worship wants to be and that we aim at. Number one is God-centered. Number two is Christ-exalting. And number three is thankful. Um, Right? So God-centered. And I believe that our worship is very God-centered. And in in verse three, he says, after he says, come into His presence with singing, know that Yahweh is God. He is, is the one who has made us. We are His. We are His people. We are His sheep. Right? This is at the center, literally, of the psalm and, and the center of our worship, knowing that He is God. And everything that we say and everything that we do centers on that knowledge and expresses and wants to be God-honoring and God-centered. So all of our praying is God-centered. All of our Preaching, I hope, is God-centered. That when you go away, I want you to have a greater sense of who God is. All of our singing, we want to be God-centered. Yahweh, we're told, is the one who has made us. 
That He is the Creator God. He is the God of the whole world. That every human being has been made by Him. He's not a local deity. He's not a village God. He's not a tribal, ethnic, or national deity. He is the Creator of humanity. That He, the one true and living God, who has named Himself and given Himself to us as Yahweh. Isaiah 45 says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it to you of old? Was it not I? Yahweh. And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God. A Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Not just Israel. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is no other. And this truth shapes all of our worship. But secondly, it is Christ-exalting. Where do I see that in the text? I see it here. When he goes on to say, not only are we to know that He is the Lord and He is God, but that it is He who made us, that we are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Now when he says this, when the psalmist says this, he's not talking about humanity at large. He's talking about Israel. Yahweh is the shepherd of Israel, the people of God. And when he says, we are your people, he is saying that which we were just quoting from Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people belonging especially to God, so to speak. His people, His church. And we know from the New Testament, even though so much of it was involved in in that call and then the the service of worship and sacrifice that made it possible for the people of the Old Testament to approach God because their sins too were dealt with and covered by a substitute. We know that substitute is Christ. There is one approach to God. Old Testament, New Testament, ever. And that is through Jesus. That that goat that was substituted for a person's sin We know His blood actually didn't cover sin. Only Jesus' blood covers sin. There is one way to be the people of God and to stand in His presence without fear. To draw near. And that is through Jesus. The one true Son of God. Galatians 3.7 says, Know this then, those who are of the faith of Abraham are the sons of Abraham. It is by faith that we draw near. Faith in Jesus Christ. In all of our worship. If it is not in and through Christ. We dare not come. We should be undone like Isaiah. And stay there. Unless off the altar comes the coal. Where your sins are forgiven and taken away. Which we know is in Christ. Our worship is thankful. And our worship is confident. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. There is no time ever that you could turn your heart to worship and enter into His gates and into His presence where there isn't grounds for thankfulness. You could have the worst day in your life and be on your deathbed and have the worst of the worst of the worst that this life has to offer. There's never a moment that we could enter into His presence and not have profound grounds to come with thankfulness. Because even on my deathbed, I know I'm about to stand in His true presence without fear. And that it is an eternal gift that He has given. 
There is no time and no place that we should not enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise, giving Him thanks and coming confidently to do so. Not just end with that that He says as He gives at the bottom line of all that He's called us to worship. He tells us at the end and the bottom and underneath it all of this confident, joyful, thankful bringing of ourselves to God. He says is this, do all of this for because, therefore, because God is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness is to all generations. God is good. His love is steadfast. His faithfulness is unending. He has covenanted in blood. We'll close with Hebrews 10, verses 16-22, to which pulls all of this together, Old and New Testament. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them at those days. The covenant in Jesus' blood. The new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Which is this inward spiritual work of the Spirit that isn't on a Sunday morning, but is a whole life. I will, I will change them from the inside out. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Behold, your sin has been taken away. Stand up. There is forgiveness of these. And there is no longer any offering of blood. You need to hear there, it is finished. There's no more need for sacrifice. Not yours or anyone else's. It is finished. Therefore, therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter into the holy places. What are the holy places? Come into His presence with singing. And into His courts with praise. We have confidence to enter into the holy place. Let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith. He calls us to worship. He shows us the heart of worship, which is a life of worship. He calls us to serve Him with gladness, to enter His courts, singing, I think one of the best ways that we do this is by not forsaking the gathering together of ourselves. By keeping Sabbath and keeping it holy on the Lord's day. We are faithful to answer His call. Faithful to give ourselves in worship. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your great love and Your mercy towards us. We thank You that You have made a way into the holy places. You have made a way into Your presence and into Your courts. Not with fear, but with joyful noise, with singing, with praise, with hearts of gratitude. I pray, Father, that this, this image and this psalm would shape our souls as we think about what it means to worship You. And that we would be faithful. Faithful. In our service of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.